Hello, chefs. You're listening to Chef's PSA Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Natera. On today's episode, this is going to be part one of a series on food cost. Stay tuned. So before we begin, I'm going to give you a brief update on progress of these Spanish translation books. I've already translated three of the Chef's PSA series. So Culinary Leadership Fundamentals, Line Cook Survival Manual, and Bad Sue Good Chef have all been translated into Spanish. I'm finalizing Kitchen Art of War and How Not to Be the Biggest Idiot in the Kitchen. They'll be out by the end of next week. So if you wanted those books in Spanish, either for you or for your staff, they are available. Go get them. You can find them all on chefspsa.com. Additionally, I did a podcast with Line Cook Thoughts where we talked all things social media strategy from the rollout of threads to why branding is so important. We talk about Instagram, Twitter versus threads and so on. It's a great podcast. If you're interested in social media content creation, that's a great episode to go listen to. It's on Line Cook Thoughts, which is also a very good podcast as well. Go check it out. Let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is going to be the first part of the series on food cost. Now, I haven't done a food cost podcast and I haven't really gotten too much into it. Now, I did write about it in the Culinary Leadership Fundamentals book, and I also have a companion to the book, which is a video course where I do cover food cost. Now, the reason I haven't done a food cost specific podcast really has a lot to do with the complexity of the subject. Because in my style of teaching, I don't think I could do a simple food cost podcast and help people really understand what food cost is. Because food cost is a very simple subject, and it's also a very complex subject. The very simple answer how to manage food costs is cost divided by sales equals your food cost percentage. And that's usually what you're going to be measured on in most restaurants. If you only take one thing from this podcast series, it's that. Cost divided by sales equals food cost percentage. And that's the formula that's used for labor cost, controllable expenses. The majority of your career, that's going to be the single formula you use for food cost. So. I don't need to do a whole podcast on understanding that formula, and we'll get into some more complex formulas throughout the series. But to really understand food costs, I think you have to understand money. I think you have to have a little bit of history of money. I think you have to understand what money is. I think you have to have a mindset on thinking about money differently when you're working in the kitchen. I also think that you have to have very specific strategies when there are problems to know where to look. I get a lot of questions on food costs specifically, and that's why I decided to do this episode. And everyone always says, teach me about food cost. Now, I'm always a little bit confused what they mean by teach me about food cost because I could teach you the formulas and you'll understand math, or I can teach you how to think about money, or I could teach you to think about how to organize yourself and where to find problems. All three are very lengthy subjects. And probably the shortest subject is understanding the formula part. But here's why I haven't wanted to teach just a formula. The formula is important and you're going to need it for the rest of your career, but you could memorize it in about 10 seconds. That doesn't teach you what you need to know about food cost because a formula is not a strategy. So then what we need to do today is we need to understand money. So what I want to do is first, I want to get into what is money, some history of money. Why do we use paper money or digital currencies or the banking system versus trading with rocks or seashells or apples for that matter? What makes something money and why you should view all food as money. If you don't understand money, really, then you really should have no business managing money. So the first thing that we're going to do in this podcast series is 
explain what money is. So the very simple answer, what is money? It's a medium of exchange for goods and services, with it being a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of accounting. Those are its three primary functions. But in order for something to be considered money, it needs to have some very specific properties. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the three specific properties that something needs in order to be considered money. And that is number one, fungibility, number two, saleability, and number three, scarcity. So if you've never heard the term fungibility, you probably, if you were paying attention to the internet a couple of years ago, everyone was going crazy for NF, which is an acronym for non-fungible tokens. So what is fungibility? Fungibility is a like-for-like -like exchange. So for example, if I have a $1 bill and you have a $1 bill and we exchange them, we both still have $1. If my $1 bill is wrinkled and I give you the $1 bill and you give me one that's crisp, we still have $1 bill. That is fungibility, a like-for-like -like exchange. Something that is non-fungible would be two very different things. So for example, the exact value of a banana is not the same as the exact value of a apple. Those two things are not necessarily fungible. Art is also something that's not fungible because the value of two different squares with painting on them could be extremely different. So the first thing for something to be considered money is fungibility. That's a fun word. Learn it. You'll, you'll be smarter than all your other chef friends if you walk around teaching them about uh, the properties of money. Anyway, we digress. Let's move on. The next property of money is saleability across time and space. When we talk about the space part, it's pretty easy. It's, it's the portability of money. So you need to be able to carry it from one side of the planet to the other side of the planet. So that's the portability aspect of money. It needs to be portable. The time aspect when we're talking about saleability is a little bit more confusing. So when we're talking about time, if you have something, let's say let, we're going to use the apple as the example. An apple is not saleable over time because if we use apples as money and I give you an apple, what's going to happen to the apple over a short period of time? It's going to start to decay. So apples are not saleable over time. So from a saleability standpoint, you want it to be saleable across time and space. So you need something that is going to not only be portable, but you also need something that's going to be incorruptible. And then the last quality of money is scarcity. So I'll, I'll give you an example of what I, what I mean by scarcity. And this also ties into food cost in a lot of ways. People often say, why are truffles so expensive or why is caviar so expensive? Usually has to do with the difficulty of getting the truffles, the scarcity of the truffles, the difficulty of getting caviar, the scarcity of the caviar. The more difficult it is to get something and the more value it's going to have, which is a property of money. So the reason something becomes valuable is because it's not in excess in the world. So for example, if we decided to use sand as money, well, everyone would be rich. You could just go outside and, and grab some sand, which makes it not a good property of money because there's no scarcity with sand. So for something to have value, it has to be scarce, which brings us to what makes gold and silver so valuable over the last several hundred years. Well, the reason gold and silver are so valuable, one, is because they are scarce metals. Two, they are saleable over time and space. Gold and silver are extremely durable. They don't corrode, they don't rust, and they don't degrade over time. So that makes them a great store of value. In addition to them being very scarce, you have to put effort into mine gold and silver. So it has all the properties of money, which makes gold and silver hard money. It makes it good money. 
Gold and silver can also be divisible, hence you have several different sizes of gold coins. It's also portable, you can move it around. And it's fungible. So if I give you a one ounce gold coin for $2,000 and you give me a one ounce gold coin, it's still worth $2,000, right? One ounce of gold, that's roughly the price right now, which is why gold and silver have been used for so many years. So anyway, now that we understand the properties of money and we understand why gold and silver have been really the money of choice for many people, let's talk about the evolution of money. In the very beginning, when people were you know, throwing rocks at each other, I guess, uh, you, would, you would have what's called the barter system. So the barter system is just a, set, a system of trade. You give me a cow, I'm going to give you a horse. We're going to determine that that's the same value and we're going to trade. Or maybe I'm going to say two horses for one cow or vice versa. That's a barter system. So people were trading resources between one another. Like sometimes when you're a chef and you got to go say, hey, can I, can I borrow this and I'll give you that? That's, that's the barter system. After the barter system, we move to commodity money. These would be things that have intrinsic value. So let's say um, wheat, rocks, shells, things like that. Things that could be commodities that could be used. Uh, you know, today commodities you'd consider like oil and things like that would be considered commodities, but people started using commodities as trade. Then we moved into metallic money. So this is when we started going into gold coins and things like that, gold and silver coins, really became the money of choice after commodity money. Then you had representative money, which is basically like the goldsmiths or the banks that would hold the money and you could exchange your paper notes for gold that they would hold for you. For a long period of time, it was the gold standard. So for example, if you had a paper note, it used to be redeemable in gold. Now we got off the gold standard in 1971 and we moved to the current system, which is fiat money which is basically backed by the confidence of you know, the, the government, for lack of a better term. And nowadays we're moving into electronic money. You know, Most of the transactions that you make in restaurants or in purchasing, you're dealing with uh, invoices, you're paying them over a credit card. There's very little exchange of actual cash or checks these days. A lot of times it's just electronic bank transfers. So we move into the era of electronic money and then moving forward, if I had a crystal ball, it seems like we're moving into the world of digital money, so cryptocurrencies and things like that. So, so now that we understand the history of money and what makes something money, there's going to be a lot of things that factor the value of money. So I, I just want to touch on that. Again, this is, this is a very rudimentary crash course on what money is. Disclaimer, I am not a professor of economics. I just like to read a lot. I should also say that this is not financial advice. There's a lot of things that affect money, but let's just stick to two things. So one is inflation and the other one is deflation. Inflation, basically the price of goods and services is going up. So the purchasing power for your dollar is basically going down in a nutshell. A good way to think about it is if they say inflation is up 8%, that means your dollar that you are using to buy things with lost about 8% of its purchasing power. Inflation can happen through increased production costs, the amount of money that's being circulated. So that's could be maybe called currency debasement. Deflation is the opposite. So deflation is when, you're, when your purchasing power of your dollar that you're using is actually going up. So to think about it this way, inflation is something that's decreasing in value and deflation is something that's increasing in value. Both of them have their pros and cons with deflation. The problem is if people are holding on to their money because the, uh, the price uh, the, I'm sorry, the value of their dollar is going up, they may be more reluctant to spend it. 
Two last things I'm going to talk about so people understand money and how this affects you is one is going to be CPI and the other one is PPI. They sound exactly the same. They affect you differently. CPI is consumer price index. So basically what this is, it's a, it's a basket of goods that's measured that consumers purchase. Typically goods and services, oil, gas, medical care, things like that are going to go into CPI. Basically what you're paying for things at home, that's CPI. PPI, which is producer price index, is the opposite. This is, these are the people that are producing things and it's their costs could potentially be going up. A good way to think about it would be CPI is what your customer is paying at your restaurant and PPI is what you're paying to your vendors for the products that you're using in your restaurant. Now, I will say there's, a, there's an interesting book out there that maybe people should read. It's How to Lie with Statistics. And, you know, the official report may come out and say inflation is only 3% or 8% or whatever the case may be, but it's measuring a specific basket of goods. That might not be your particular inflation for your restaurant. While the national average, let's say, just use 8% as the example, the national average of inflation may be 8%. Restaurants may experience more or less inflation based on what you're purchasing. So if you want to know what your true inflation is for your particular restaurant, the way I used to track it is I would look at my top 20 spend items, which may be, you know, your beef, your seafood, your cheese, things like that. I would list out the top 20 items and I would look at the price difference between a year ago and today. And then you could see what your true inflation increase is based on the items that you're spending. Now, a lot of times what you'll be surprised is that your inflation for your restaurant might be up 20 to 30%, even though the national average is only up 8%. So a good food cost strategy is to understand what your particular inflation rate is for your restaurant or for your operation. So now that we understand what money is, the next thing that I want to walk you through is we need to understand that everything in your kitchen that you buy is money. The food on the shelf, the food in the walk-in, the mise en place that you have in the line, that is all money. And so a good exercise is instead of viewing everything as commodities, so lettuce and tomatoes, start looking at it as dollar bills. I went to a seminar years ago when I was, when I was a, a younger chef, and this guy that was doing the presentation, he talked about how we need to view food as money, and he gave some great examples. It made such a big impact on me that I, I still use these examples to this day, so I'm going to share them with you. He said, when you look at your walk-in cooler, don't look at it as a refrigerator. Look at it as a bank vault. And instead of looking at all the food on the shelves as food, start looking at them as dollars. And if that was the case, would you treat it different? And the, and the answer is yes, of course you would. If it was a bank vault, you wouldn't allow just anyone to go in and out. If someone came to you and said, hey, chef, can I go in and get some lemons really quick and some oranges? Maybe you would have them sign a ledger so you'd have really good accounting practice of what's going in and out of your coolers. If the food truck, when it delivers food, don't think of it as a Cisco truck or whatever. Think of it as a Brinks truck carrying cash. Instead of thinking that there's produce in there, think about that as money. And if someone was delivering cash to you, wouldn't you count it first? Of course you would right? If someone was delivering $10,000 to your bank, you wouldn't just say, oh yeah, put it in there. The cooler's over there or the bank vault's over there. You would say, let me count all the money before it goes in. 
the same principle applies because what they're delivering, yes, it's food. But if you think about it as money, you might be a little bit more meticulous in your practices. You might have a scale. You might want to weigh everything. You're going to spot check the invoices. You're going to double check the prices. That is the first step in managing food costs is understanding that everything that you're dealing with is money. Then when you look at the products that you're using, if you were buying something and you were storing it on the shelves, but you're not rotating it, think of it as money that's depreciating in value right away. As food starts to lose quality, it starts to go off, it, be, it becomes moldy and it begins to decay. Well, then that's money that's basically being thrown away. When you throw the produce away, what you're actually throwing away is dollars that you spent. The most expensive thing that you have in your kitchen is the thing that gets thrown away. And what I mean by that is if you're buying something and you're only throwing away, then you've generated zero revenue off that product. And if you're generating zero dollars off something that you purchased, that is a 100% food cost. That is a 100% loss. So think about it. The most expensive thing in your kitchen is the thing that doesn't sell. It's the thing that is in the trash. The other thing is you have to reframe how you think about when you're throwing things away at the end of the night, what you're giving away. Let's just use this as an example. You have a restaurant and that restaurant serves hamburgers. And one of the service staff comes up to you and says, hey, I rang in a ticket. Can you put some avocado on that burger and some extra bacon? And you don't charge for it. So you give them the extra avocado and you give them the extra bacon. Now, let's say you pay a dollar for the avocado and a dollar for the bacon. Remember, this is money. So we're thinking about this as money. If you went up to someone in a restaurant and you said, hey, can I get a burger? Can you also give me $2 back with it? What would you say? You say, absolutely not. Why would I give you $2? But that's what you're doing when you're giving away the avocado for free or that bacon for free. Whenever you give something away for free, it's zero income generated. Now, I understand that a lot of places are going to say, but it makes the customers happy. That's up to you to decide. If you want to give food away, that is completely your choice. But you need to understand that when you're giving that food away, you're also giving money away. So make sure you're making a responsible financial decision when you decide to give things away. Now, the last thing that we're going to talk about today, because this is going to be a multi-part series, but really I want you to start thinking about food costs differently beginning now. And that is understanding that all food is not equal when it comes to its value. And I'll tell you a little story. When we were hit with COVID and all these restaurants were closing left and right, you quickly realize the value of something perishable versus the value of something non-perishable. If you had $10,000 in your produce cooler and you had to close your restaurant down for two to three months, that was $10,000 in the trash because that produce would not survive the three months of closure. So even though it had value, the initial value of the, the money exchange when you bought it, it no longer had value by the time you returned. Now, if you took that same example and you looked at your dry storage, and I'm making this up, cans of tomatoes, flour, sugar, et cetera, most likely you didn't lose that. So when you came back three months later and opened up your restaurant, that $10,000 worth of dry storage retained value. So here we have, if we're talking in terms of assets, you have a depreciating asset, which is the produce that is you, it's, it's losing value. The longer it stays on the shelf, the more it depreciates and quickly, right? Some, some things go bad within a couple of days. Where on the other end, you have a more stable asset. Again, we're using assets as an example. It's going to maintain value over a longer period of time. So we get back to that point that we were making earlier 
saleability across time and space. The saleability of flour or sugar over time and space is much greater than the saleability of lettuce and tomatoes. So if you were going to use one as money, you would want the item that's going to be less perishable. Again, we're thinking about cost, for example. So let's just, again, just to use another example, if we were talking about wine, you have a lot of restaurants that have incredible wine lists. But if, when COVID happened, most likely when they came back, that wine still maintained its value. But everything that was perishable, you, you most likely had to discard it or give it away because there was no way it was going to hold its value upon your return unless you froze it or something like that, assuming that the freezing wouldn't deteriorate the quality of it. Anyway, this was episode one. I just wanted to lay the foundation. What is money? Why you need to start thinking about money, especially if you're running a restaurant operation and why it's important to think about this. On the next episode, we're going to get into the formulas that you're going to be using, how to calculate food cost, what the longer calculation is, how to come up with menu pricing, what a theoretical food cost is, strategies for inventory, and how to protect yourself from the rising cost that we're all, we're all facing right now as, uh, as restaurateurs and chefs. So anyway, if you don't want to listen to the next episode, just remember this, cost divided by sales is your food cost percent. If that's all you needed, there you go cost divided by sales. If you want to support the show, you know what to do. Make sure you leave five stars. If you're on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. Nothing less than five stars. Go get the books, English or Spanish. They're all available on chefspsa.com. Buy yourself a happy cook hat if that's something that you like. We'll see you next week. Hit the porno music.